Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the folks who build them. And today I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Dominic Midori Davis. How's it going, Dom? Good. How are you? Trying not to melt. Yeah, I know. It's really hot out. It's really hot out. People who are not in New York, it's like, can't walk your dog hot out. It's disgusting hot. And it smells like burning trash. Just had to throw that out there. Mm. I love you, New York. Now that you have that beautiful visual, Dom has some fun news. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Before we get into today's guests, we just want to remind you that Disrupt is coming up in just over a month. Join us in San Francisco, September 18th through the 20th. We'll be doing a live recording of Found with our special guest, Window Snyder from Thistle Technologies. Use the code FOUND to get 15% off your pass. Woohoo! You guys are not going to want to miss that one. I personally am super excited to speak to Window Snyder. So you should be there. You should be there. And for today's show, we also have a fabulous guest. We're talking to Anna Rupa Ganguly, who is the founder and CEO of Prisms, which is a startup that uses VR to help students learn math through movement, experience, and meaningful discoveries. Hi, Anna Rupa. How's it going? It's great. I'm in Texas. It's really hot, but otherwise it's great. <laughs> yeah, listeners, you can't see this, but Anna Rupa is sitting in front of a very fun wall of pictures. I'm assuming those are principals of the school district or the school board? They're the, yeah, past superintendents and school board members. Uh, well, that looks very regal and stately to have as a background, but we should probably talk a little bit about why you're at a school district in Texas. So I think what probably makes the most sense to get started is why don't you tell us a little bit about Prisms VR? Sure. Thanks so much for sitting down with me. So PRISMS is a spatial learning platform where students get to learn core math and science by embodying themselves with their bodies, not just their minds, in real-world problems powered by virtual reality. And then from those real-world situations to solve these problems, learning core maths and science principles from the ground up before connecting to more formal notation, vocabulary, and procedures. So it's really a methodology for kids to go from the concrete physical to abstract representations that they ordinarily don't know where they come from and, and as such memorize. And that's super interesting as someone who struggled a bit with math and had parents who were engineers, so I always felt a little embarrassed by that fact. I'm curious how you got interested in this space to begin with. Yeah, so my journey with STEM education reform began in college. So I studied electrical engineering and computer science at MIT and saw just huge drop-offs and lack of representation of a lot of different people. For example, my freshman year, about 24% of my department were women and more than 50% dropped out. So it was just a pretty big shock to me to see certain demographics drop off over time. And I became obsessed with why does that happen? What's causing these drop-offs over time? And to understand this, I became a teacher. So I taught high school algebra and physics in the Boston Public schools. It's a medium-sized Title I district with about 55,000 students and 125 schools. After I left the classroom, I became the director of 612 and K-12 math. So really looking at not just from the perspective of a teacher, what was the issue that was happening, but from a systemic perspective of what does it take to not just close learning gaps for a group of kids, but across a larger set of schools, which is what took me to New York City, where I then went from 50,000 kids to taking care of about 1.2 million students. And that's when I really became convinced that we don't have the tools to close the learning gaps at scale. And that's what kind of created PRISMS and specifically why VR and why the form that we took. I discovered that the top indicators of success in post-secondary STEM is your ability to think spatially, number one, and two, your ability to abstract up from physicality. 
and the tools that we had, they don't build either of those competencies. And so three years ago, I started PRISMS to build a spatial learning platform where kids got to learn with their bodies in real life situations with emotional resonance with problems around them to really build mathematical identities from a very young age and gain those academic proficiencies while also gaining these core competencies that are the top indicators, spatial reasoning and abstract thinking. And thinking about this learning gap that you just mentioned, maybe it'd be good to kind of stay on that for a minute. And maybe if you want to describe how large this learning gap is and how big of a challenge is this to solve? Yeah, so I mean, the most recent, I think it's all over the news, but math scores have gone down in every single state in the U.S., in all 51 states over the past few years. About 70% of U.S. 8th graders are not proficient in math. And as you well know, Bob Moses talked about this at length. With the Algebra Project, Algebra 1 is a civil rights issue in that it's one of the main predictors of future life wages of access to a wide swath of jobs in our economy. You're not doing well in Algebra 1. Your prospects and what you can achieve and contribute to have greatly limited. And the precursors to Algebra 1 is grade 7 and 8 math. So it all starts at middle school, which of course is is predicated on elementary school, so it's turtles all the way down. But we are in a specific crisis right now in that math scores in the U.S. were stagnant even before the pandemic. Now post-pandemic, we've had a greater slide where we are at an all-time kind of more recent low in math achievement across the country. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about utilization. So, I mean, it's been a while since I've been inside of a school. Do like a lot of schools have the technology to use this? Do all schools have like VR stuff now? No. And I think that's what's so nice about what we're doing. It's not about the tech. So it's not like, hey, do you have VR headsets? It's about, do you want to teach math in a problem-based way? And if you do, we're going to deliver all the tech for you. So we're going to get you, help you get the VR headsets. We're going to help you get the charging units. We're going to help you get the MDM. We're going to kind of give you all the infrastructure. So what we're leading with is the pedagogy of what are you trying to achieve with your students? And then think about, well, what are the tools that we might need? In this case, we need spatial computing tools to help kids learn again through stories and with their bodies. Did you see a lot of schools come to you during the pandemic asking for help regarding all of this? I think that schools became more sensitized than ever during the pandemic, that the existing tools aren't working because the entire system became reliant on digital tools, on edtech tools. And then seeing how those edtech tools were just failing us, we realized why. And it's because we were constantly digitizing previous methods that didn't really work for most kids in the first place. So most edtech tools in math today, it's some form of online videos, online lectures, drill and kill tools, which that traditional methodology of learning is it works for about 12% of the population. Most kids weren't even really being successful in the classroom with brick and border methods today and then make those digital and we had even a greater slide. So it was less about schools coming to us and more about there's this consciousness that just became very pervasive across our industry that if we're serious about closing the STEM achievement gap, we don't have the tools because we started using everything we had and the numbers went down. And taking a step back on the VR portion for a second, I know you hinted at the beginning, but why does virtual reality solve these problems? And is that, I don't want to say the only way to tackle these issues, but how did you land on that when you're thinking about how to approach? Yeah, so it goes back to some of that literature review I was talking about where when I was racking my brain around why is it that despite buying everything and having loads and loads of instructional coaches were not able to close the achievement gap. And I that's when I discovered that the number one indicator of success in post-secondary STEM is spatial reasoning. You can't teach spatial reasoning on a piece of paper and a screen as effectively as you can teach it in a spatial medium where students are able to use their entire body in six degrees of freedom. 
So the reason I came to VR is because of those top predictors. And the second predictor being your ability to abstract from physicality. And again, you can't do that when you're on a, a laptop because everything is modulated through a keyboard and a mouse and you're looking at a small screen. So when we talk about abstracting up, you have to give kids that human experience. So what I always share is abstraction isn't looking at a word problem, drawing visualizations and diagrams creating charts and tables and equations. Those are all 2D. Abstractions, Isaac Newton. He was sitting under a tree, an apple fell. He's like, whoa, how do I go from this physical experience I just had to ascribe language, notation, and build models? And the only technology that affords that kind of experiential learning where you're able to put someone in a situation versus intellectualize it is virtual reality. It just makes me think back of when I was in especially elementary school and some of the word problems we would do in math. I just remember we had a, I had a very funny teacher a couple of years in elementary school who would always, the word problem would be like, oh, Luke has 50 lobsters. And she'd be like, not that Luke would ever have 50 lobsters, but sure, like let's reason off of that and like do the math problem. And so it definitely makes me think of like, what do these situations look like? I mean, of course, they're going to be different based on what kids are trying to learn or sort of like what the lesson is there. But what did this all look like if you're, say, a student looking to use this? Yeah, I think that the real estate value for math class has been so low because of what you just said. It's like you're at the grocery store, you have like apples and pears, or is the hare or the tortoise going to get to the finish line on time? Or, you know, how many boxes of cookies? I think kids look at those problems and they, they know those aren't the most important and compelling problems that the smartest people in the world are working on. They're aware. So in terms of the types of problems that I've picked, in Algebra 1, for example, you learn exponential functions by stepping into the role of an epidemiologist on a task force. And you're looking at, well, how many weeks into the hospitals in your community are are going to reach capacity. Kids read, they see that, like, that's an actual problem. I heard about in the news. I, you know, my uncle's a doctor, like, it was in the zeitgeist, right? And so the way the product works is you put your headset on and you're in a situation. You are in this particular module, you're in a food hall and you're buying your food, you're taking the environment, and there's a mayor's announcement because everything's story driven. You don't have anyone lecturing at you or talking at you. And the mayor's like, there's an alarming growth rate of a virus. Stay safe. And the kid's like, wait, what just happened? And then they get the power on their watch to go back in time and see those behaviors that were playing out. They're like, well, how is the virus spreading? So like, oh, I had heard her sneeze before. I didn't realize there was transmission. I saw her friend walk back. Another four people could have gotten it. So it's a physical understanding of exponential growth before we've used the word exponent factor we haven't said any of those words yet. As I mentioned at the beginning, they then accept their mission. How many weeks until the hospitals are going to reach capacity? And through that question, you're still in VR. You're connecting that physical understanding of the food hall to 3D simulations outside your body to kind of see what that looks like. You then connect that to tactile data visualizations where you can begin to see that exponential curve. You begin to kind of annotate those groups of five and seeing that structure. From there, you begin to create charts and tables, which are your first 2D representations of thought from which you kind of begin to discern the expression. Oh, I see a five. I see a five times five. But you always remember... I remember the cashier spreading it to five people in that food hall when I was in that situation. So these numbers have a lot of tangible value. And then from there, you create the equation y is equal to five to the t from which you generalize to y is equal to ab to the x. So every equation now is being generated through a series of physical experiences versus what happened in class is like, today we're going to learn about exponential growth. The general form is y is equal to ab to the x. And then like doing a bunch of word problems where kids, A, they don't know where the equation came from. And B, all the word problems are so contrived that it doesn't really give them a sense of how they would use it in their world or in their community. I want to try this. I know, right? It sounds so amazing. What was it like pitching this to investors? Yeah, so when I first started, you know, schools didn't have any headsets, as, as you alluded to. And this was a harebrained idea. You're going to teach kids math in virtual reality through real world problems. What? You know, there, it still needs to be standards aligned. And so I got funded by the NSF and the NIH. Like I got SBIR, non-dilutive 
funding, which is really helpful to really build the product in schools with teachers, really get the design right, invest a lot of time in R&D and make sure that it was efficacious and delivering learning outcomes because you don't design from the beginning. You can't design for that down the road. It's too late at that point. And so once I built the first product, I started with Algebra 1 because Algebra 1 is the Achilles heel of the secondary STEM program today. It's the biggest pain point that most school systems have. I then I took the product to market to my first 10,000 students in 14 school systems. And at that point, we just began to see so much demand and excitement from teachers and schools. Superintendents began to refer to other superintendents. Teachers began to refer to other teachers, and we just began to grow. And just about 18 months later, we're now across 200,000 students, 194 school districts in 36 states. So it's been really wonderful to like see that growth. And in terms of investors, I mean, ultimately, they want to see a product that people love. And when they saw the way that teachers and kids were responding, that was a perfect time to go pitch. And how did like all the pitching go? Like what was the feedback that they gave you? So I actually didn't spend a ton of time fundraising. I raised a family and friends round, which is really great to kind of get us going after our NSF investment. And then when I was ready for a seed round, I just pitched a few folks I wanted to talk to and found the right fit. So I think that there was a lot of excitement for what we were building. There was always obviously a lot of trepidation to take hardware into a market that does not exist as a small startup. And there's a a lot of questions around K-12 budgets and can schools afford this? And I think that historically, you haven't had a lot of edtech founders who come from the market. You had a lot of folks that know the technology, perhaps, but they'd never served schools. They'd never taught bell to bell. They don't have understanding of how money is moved around in school systems. So I think there was obviously some reticence for school sales. But I think once investors saw the traction we had and the fact that within a year, you know, we'd gotten to a million in ARR, they realized that there's some real value and demand here. And, you know, they spent a lot of time with our customers. And I think that that kind of spoke for itself. And since you mentioned it, because EdTech has been sort of on an interesting funding trajectory over the last few years. It was really hot, then it was less hot, and then the pandemic got really hot again. And now we're seeing it kind of cool off in some ways. How do you think those patterns and that ebb and flow of investor interest in EdTech affected you guys both fundraising actively in the process as well as sort of planning out when it made sense to go out into market, when it made sense to sort of plan out that part of the business? Yeah, I just don't think we got put in any category. When I remember when um, one of the things that Jeff Jordan had said to me when we first started working together, he's like, you know, I don't invest in companies that sell to schools. You know, that that's not my area of interest. So it was less about like it's an ed tech product. And as such, it was like, this is something that is revolutionary. Kids, teachers, parents are loving it. And we want to support an efficacious, truly innovative way of learning math and science. I think that was the narrative. It was less kind of focused on the industry or domain. Like, I don't really come from EdTech myself. There's nobody on my team that traditionally comes from EdTech. I was a teacher and district leader. You know, my, my engineering team is like fully from the tech and gaming world. So when I'm thinking about the question, that, that just didn't come up much around like the EdTech space or it affecting us because it was just so much about our product, our traction, and, and showing that when you truly have a new way of learning math that is backed by research that will solve a market problem, people are going to buy it. And I think that when you are not staking your outcomes and efficacy, those sorts of products are just going to, they're going to be on a house of cards because you're going to ride a wave of like something like the pandemic where it's like people are looking for something, but there weren't enduring outcomes. So if you can't show that kids' scores went up and kids were more engaged over an extended period of time, I mean, schools are going to throw those products out. And so that's just not how we built the product. We weren't riding a trend. We partnered with WestEd from the beginning. We were running efficacy and RCC studies from the day one. We were always measuring impact. And that's why I think we're seeing the renewal rates that we're seeing in our school systems of people not wanting to throw the product out because they saw outcomes with their kids. 
I see that you're in more more than 100 different school districts. And I'm just really curious, what was the hardest school district and city to sell to and why? That's an interesting question. I think that we really took off all across the South. So I'm in Texas right now, Florida, Georgia. There's a real openness. Ohio is actually a lighthouse state. We started with four districts there. We're across about 50 districts just in the state of Ohio. And it was all word of mouth and just sharing student experiences with one another. I would say in general, the Northeast and the West Coast, there is it's more bureaucratic. It is much more like, let's start with smaller pilots. Like they're just not, they're not risk takers the way that I've kind of typically seen it. So now we're kind of beginning to set up more pilots on the coast and like pushing the needle. But it's been amazing. Like where the product took off was the Midwest and the South because there was just such, there was such an irreverence for like, we're going to truly try something new because what we, what we have isn't working. And now we've got to bring that to the coast as well. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's well. Makes sense in some ways, because as you mentioned, like a lot of those districts are where you're going to find more of a concentration of like schools that maybe need that kind of technology or need that sort of support. But then it's also like the budget comes into hand where you'd say, I would guess like budgets in the Northeast overall as like an average are probably much higher than down in some of the schools in the Southern districts. So it is kind of interesting that that's like how it played out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all based on, you know, per pupil funding. And then you're right that a lot of title, like a lot of urban schools, they get a lot of federal dollars because they serve low income and, and high poverty students. Yeah, I've just been really surprised at how risk averse some of these more, what you traditionally think would be more progressive parts of the country in terms of just technology. You would think a place like a California would be ahead. It's the opposite, though there's so much tech advancement in California in terms of private businesses, public institutions, or I, I would argue like way behind the rest of the country in terms of their use of technology. So it's it's definitely been inversely proportional in my experience. We're going to take a quick break. I'm sort of thinking about the actual product in the sense of like what kids are using when they're interacting with Prism VR. How do you guys think about, I know you mentioned the example earlier of using algebra to show how like a disease can spread. But how do you guys think of these scenarios and sort of like, do you have a content team or like, do you guys just all like pass around ideas on Slack? Like, I'm curious because it sounds like a very fun approach. I mean, I always was curious who wrote the word problems that had the ridiculous amounts of things you were buying or sharing or giving away at the time. So how do you guys come up with all the content? Yeah, so all the first content I I worked on with a team member and, you know, I wanted to pick things across renewables and sustainability and architecture and really give. So to learn linear functions, you're looking at Miami's raising all their decks by four feet right now because of rising sea levels. So looking at when is Miami going to have a flood risk. To learn circles, you are in Central Asia building low-cost yurts, which are circular dwellings. To learn solids of rotation, you are in San Francisco looking at the current affordable housing crisis and learning about modular housing technologies that will bring the cost of building down and the cost of rent down commensurately. So we really kind of look at just current issues that we know are going to be something that kids are going to have to be thinking and talking about at least for the next, you know, 20 to 30 years. In terms of how we don't have a full content team, I still like I'm very, very heavy on the script. So, for example, we have tons of districts in West Virginia now using. And so I really wanted their community to see themselves in the product. So we just built our functions module in Appalachia where kids are taking all the wasted corn that West Virginia produces and converting into ethanol to power cities across the state. So just really kind of like a lot of it is, is just 
being aware, constantly being abreast of what we need our kids to be talking about, thinking about, to be builders in the world and and looking forward versus just constantly looking at like, you know, applications from 10 years ago, which is why we're always building new content. It's not like static of like, hey, we built Algebra 1 or we built middle school math. We're constantly refreshing and building new ideas. And as we build and expand it to new states and communities and countries, we want to continue to expand to really represent all the children that we serve. And it definitely sounds like, if I were to guess, some of that sort of an thoughtful approach would be because you were a teacher yourself and know how kids are going to react and you've been in the classroom. And I know you mentioned that earlier that a lot of founders in the ed tech space really haven't. And I'm curious, how do you think it's a strength for you as a founder that you do have that background working with these kids directly? And do you think there's any drawbacks to that as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are a couple of things that come to mind. The number of teachers who have almost been, they've been in tears, not almost, they've been in tears in my presentations because they're like, this is the first time we're meeting an ed tech company where the CEO was a teacher. She taught bell to bell. So every decision that's made at this company is through the prism of the end experience for teachers and students. And I know those so intimately. And so what's happened is we've just built so far, our foundation is so high integrity in terms of curriculum alignment, exactly like all the things that kids need, what different students need. It's a highly accessible environment. So we have like different writing tools, different data visualization tools, lots of movement, lots of language accessibility. And it came from the fact that I taught every kid, I I taught stop separate, I taught inclusion students. I've seen every individualized education plan out there. So I was able to channel my work with just millions of kids to make sure that every piece of the product works. Every piece of the product has been designed through the lens of the end practitioner and end user, which is how is a teacher going to teach from start to finish? How do we get every student across the finish line with the product? And this is a systems product because we're not selling to teachers. We sell to school districts. So how do they manage deployments of hardware? How do they manage the outcomes that they purchased this to buy? The second thing that came to mind is just around the, the credibility I think the reason why we've been able to sell as quickly as we do is because they realize how much mind we've put to implementation, which is like you can build a product, but if you don't know how to do the coaching, the training, the job embedded support, and really get it to the expansion, the renewal, which is predicated on really setting up every educator for success. It's not, you can build the product for success, but then you have to kind of be there on the ground with them being in classrooms. And so that's been a superpower of ours. In terms of how has it hurt, you know, the time will tell. Not hurt, but how has that held us back? Nothing so far, but I can't predict the future. So maybe something will come up. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear about how being a teacher has really helped you build this product. Because growing up, did you ever want to be an entrepreneur? No, I, I wanted to be an engineer. My dad, you know, is a rocket scientist. My mom's an electrical engineer. Since I was a little girl, I was always building things and tinkering with things. And that's why I went I went to MIT and loved my time there. And I stayed on my graduate work there. And again, I was recruiting for tech jobs. I was about to, you know, move to San Francisco and do that whole thing. And then Teach for America came to recruit at MIT right before. I, it's, it's so it, Life is so fortuitous sometimes. And I just thought, let me go check out what this is. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard of them. And then when they started to talk about just the huge lack of opportunity for such a large demographic in our society and have access to high quality education, like I just started to connect all the dots in my life. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is the case, right? Like even in my own setting, like all the people that look like me aren't here anymore. Where did they go? Right. And so, you know, I began to as I learned more about Teach for America's movement, I started to see the reflections in my own life and throughout my own experiences. And that's when I realized I wanted to jump in and be a part of that solution. So even when I became a teacher, I had no idea that I 
I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I taught and I worked with kids and then I became a leader and I started writing curriculum and doing the work. Wait, I wanted to be a teacher. I want to be a district leader, but I don't have the tools. I, I got into this work to make sure every kid is getting an excellent education and I don't have the tools to do that. And like finally, years later is when I realized, okay, well, I think I need to go build something for teachers and, and leaders. So that's, that's where this came to be. Wait, so what has it been like as someone who didn't have experience previously running a business? What has it been like learning kind of the highs and lows of running your own company? Like, what are some memories or standout moments that you have? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a real thing. So I am a single founder. And so I built my first product. And then after I did that, I obviously kind of built out my engineering team. Then I moved to the next vertical selling. I hit the road. I I travel six days a week. I'm on a plane twice a day. And I started selling. And then I kind of really mechanized and operationalized the sales motion so that anybody could do what I was doing. And now I'm moving to the next vertical, customer success, really focused on how do we go from from the time a deal closes to renewal. So I think my journey, the way I've built the company rather, has been to do every single job at an atomic level intensely. So I understand every piece of it from product to end to sales to customer experience, and then hire the team that is going to be able to take those playbooks and just scale. But you know, in terms of what it's taken for me to learn, I would say that's one great thing about great teachers is they know how to learn because you cannot be a teacher for a long time if you don't know how to constantly learn. And so there's been so many great resources for entrepreneurs at my early, the MIT venture services like that network was incredible. But yeah, what I fast learned is that if you want to be a founder, there's so many resources out there and everybody will help you. And more than anything else, other founders will help you. And when I think about my early cap table and my early investors, they were all other founders in my network who jumped in and gave me their time and, and really helped me think about what I want this to be and, and how I continue to up like level myself up and upskill myself. So I also think my board member, Jeff, Jeff Jordan, and, and the, the entire team at Andreessen Horowitz have been amazing at really helping me at every junction think about where the company is and how to both level myself up and my team up. I met with a lot of investors and you know, they, people always talk about what it means to be founder-friendly. And I think that that's what I came to define as founder-friendly is really understanding and giving that person the resources to level up at every junction. And I've been very lucky to have a lot of great mentors, resources, and investors that are helping me do that. And something that you mentioned was scale. And that was something I wanted to ask you about since it sounds like you guys have had pretty good luck selling into school districts thus far, but definitely in the grand scheme of potential customers, they are not necessarily going to be the easiest group to sell to. And with school districts are so different and different states have different rules about education and different standardized testing and stuff like that. How do you guys think about scale and sort of being able to make sure that your company can meet districts and schools where they are? Because some of them are so different from each other. Yeah. So I think that that's the beauty of regions. So Texas, like they all talk to each other. I don't want to give specific names, but when a certain district started using, they told their their other, there's another big district right next door. They told them, we've had a network effect here where, you know, they're all sharing with each other. So I actually, we have not seen that issue with scale. Same thing in Florida. They all talk to each other and they all respect each other. So if like Miami-Dade is using something or if, you know, West Palm Beach is using something, like they're constantly sharing those resources. So we've actually seen tremendous scale within regions very quickly, nothing to do with us and everything to do with them. And in terms of state standards, Florida has all this, it's all the same standards. So there's really no changes that we have to make to product. We've also chosen very evergreen things like Algebra 1 has been the same since the 1800s. That hasn't changed. So we don't have to, linear functions ain't going nowhere, you know, and it's the same whether you're in West Virginia, New York, or Colorado, kids learn linear functions in Algebra 1. So we've actually been quite lucky. Math is very universal and there isn't much differential from state to state. In terms of like 
long-term growth, I think, yes, my immediate focus was capture the U.S. K-12 math market, which is what we're en route to doing now. We have released science. All of science went out this summer. So we have, oh, we're now kind of training whole new cadres of science teachers. We're going to be moving into the humanities. We'll be moving into our cross-platform like web and MR product because obviously I started with VR because it's such an immersive way for kids to learn through storytelling. But that's not the only medium. There's so much value that augmented and, and mixed reality can bring once you're back in your space to continue to interact with structure, data visualizations without needing to be in a different world and kind of be able to do that in your own world. So as we kind of begin to work on those products, we're getting a lot of inquiry from international K-12. I think like every day we get inquiries from another two, three countries. So I'm trying to keep us focused. We're like, no, we're not responding. We're not building as of yet, but uh, we'll be localizing and, and releasing to schools all around the world very, very soon. So stay tuned. And something else that I wanted to ask you about, just because of everything we've talked about so far, and I know you mentioned you're traveling six days a week, like you're always on the road. What has this journey been like for you personally? Obviously, it's an issue you care so much about, but it seems like a grind. It's like a grueling thing to get something like this off the ground. So how has it been for you personally as a founder? I think it's lonely. Um, you know, hotel rooms five nights a week can eat away at your soul over over time. And I, kind of going back to the previous comment I made about being a single founder, there are things you can share with your team and there are things that you can't. And so I think that's where I've relied really heavily on my investors and my advisors and my CEO community. I think the biggest thing is obviously being able to invest in and build your team. But it's not as simple as just build your team because you, ha you have to bring those people in at the right time. They have to have the right systems and structures in place already. So that's kind of the inflection point that I'm at. That's the biggest, that's the hardest thing for most founders. I right? just to let go and to know when to let go. Not letting go gets back to what we were talking about, that it's all on your shoulders. It's lonely. You're not necessarily doing the right right thing by the company, but then hiring too fast, not being super clear about, about what the business needs and burning through capital is also a huge risk, right? So everything, as you know, in startups is is about that delicate balance. And I think that's where I am. But you're talking to me at this very interesting inflection point where I am now starting to expand the team and truly take things off my plate. And it's almost like, well, what am I going to do now then? <laughs> um, but you know, that, that, that's a joke. Obviously, there's a lot to do. But yeah, I think it's an object lesson in, in letting go and knowing when to let go and really helping to build the capacity in others. And that's hopefully where my work as a teacher will also come in handy because that's the work of a teacher is building capacity in others. So how big is your team right now? We are 24 people. We'll be jumping to 35 in about a week and a half and then about 40 by the winter. And then we're going to freeze there as we finish all of our deployments for this academic year. And then we'll be, we'll be looking to grow again in the spring. Oh, that's so exciting. Okay, so since you're always traveling, like what is the workplace culture like? Is everyone remote or is there an office? And how do you kind of lead from always being on the road? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something I think a lot about. So we are moving all of product and engineering and operations to San Francisco. We I started that move a few months ago, but customer support, success, and sales are all regional. So the great thing about the sales and customer success team is we're always meeting on the road, right? So we're always in classrooms together. We don't meet in an office, but we I actually see them, I think, more than I see my product and engine team. And now I think we're getting much better at, I'm beginning to 
to hold one to two days in San Francisco where we all are together in our office and kind of holding that time more sacred is going to be a priority moving forward. But to the direct answer to your question, it's been really hard and it's been, it's required a lot of over communication and sharing from the road and making sure everybody in the company can see what's happening in classrooms that are connected to the mission, the vision and the impact, which is in classrooms. And not everybody has access to that, especially our product and engine team. So I tried my best to always make sure we're, we're coming together as a team so they have visibility into who we serve. Oh, wow. And so how do you ensure, I guess, positive workplace? Like what are some policies, initiatives that you have at the company to make sure that all the employees, like that morale is up? Yeah, it's funny. I think that we're we're a very, very mission-driven organization. And we always say that our culture is experiencing success together and really celebrating. Like we take a lot of time to celebrate the successes, celebrate what everyone is doing, have visibility. I think even in small companies, you can get siloed product and engine won't know exactly what sales is accomplishing, won't know exactly what what CS is accomplishing. So I think that one of the biggest things that we've done, we have a long way to go, is just have that level of transparency where anybody can articulate what exactly like other verticals are doing and be a part of that so that, you know, we always remember what it was to be a sub 30 startup, which is all of us own all the work and all of us own student outcomes. It's not just the teacher coaches. It's not just product. As we move back into the office uh, more full time, we're really excited to all be back together, building and creating together. I think that we're one of those companies that I do not believe when you're trying to build a product as innovative as, as ours, that you can do that remotely. I don't believe it. And it's been really hard to do that. So I think everyone's really happy to be back in the office together, creating, designing, iterating, and just having that real-time feedback. I feel like every time I'm back in the office, what my head of product and engine, like what we're able to achieve in two hours, it was like 50 Slack communications when we were remote. So we're very much an in-person first. We've moved away from a lot of the beliefs that remote work is like the best thing since sliced bread. Like we found that that was not the case in our world. It affected us a lot. It affected culture. It affected our relationships. It became very individualistic where it was about like my exercise routine, I eat better, I maybe, but like the team culture was suffering. Like, so even though like people might've had better routines when they were sitting at home, the way the team interacted was much more superficial and behind screens and not really being able to go there and get to know the people with whom you work. So I think it's been really valuable to be back together and we hope to continue to invest in that. And sort of thinking about the future, I think we have time for one last question. How are you thinking about where the company goes from here and not just necessarily product, but also product and also sort of growing the team, as you mentioned, and continuing to go on this in-person forward work journey together? Yeah, I always say that the culture that we create now is going to be the foundation for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that we welcome into our home over the next few years. So as you well know, in an early stage startup, it's like you are moving fast, you are breaking things, you are breaking molds, you are breaking ways of doing things, you are disrupting. In order, like you go into a prisms classroom, that is not how people learned math 10 years ago, right? It is a truly a new method. Kids are standing up. They're in stories. And I think that that mentality of break, 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 disrupt, 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 inspire, 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 like we now need to transition from that and start to really set like our core beliefs and transition from the pirate ship, as we call it, to, you know, a more stable environment where people can build long careers and be here for a long time and have families. And 
that is kind of going back to this idea of like leveling up for myself of how do I lead the company from being like on the grind all the time and saying, well, now if I'm going to be investing in myself over the next 15 years to lead this company, how do I also kind of scale those sorts of practices for all of my employees so they can also see a life here over the next 10 years versus what we're beginning to see is some of our employees are facing burnout. They are kind of like, the last three years were amazing, but I don't know how much longer I can do this. And that's that's always such a shame when you lose those early leaders because you lose a part of your soul. And there's like one employee in particular, you know, we're, we're losing and it's going to be a huge detriment to the company. The company will never be the same again after this person's gone. And that was a really big wake up call to me that we have to kind of renorm now. It's not a mentality of scarcity anymore. We have capital in the bank. We have customers who love the product. We now need to slow down to go fast again. Um, and that's kind of the, the immediate transition. In terms of forward looking, you know, we intend to be the best in class STEM learning platform the world has seen. And so we started with supplemental. We'll be moving into core curriculum. A lot of our districts are asking us like, well, we love that we're here a few days, but can you be the whole thing? And we said, yes, but that means we're taking on the tech book companies. And, you know, that takes a little bit of intestinal fortitude. So, yeah, there's just a, a huge opportunity because people want something new. STEM education has been really dry and really unfixed for a really long time. And there is a excitement and spirit that I'm seeing in the market that I have not seen being in the market over the past 15 years. And what a fun note to end on. So thank you so much for coming on. This was super interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that was our conversation with Anna Rupa. Dom, what did you think? So much to unpack. I know. I mean, like, I'm obsessed with the product and I think it's a really, really good idea and a really interesting way to teach kids math. I mean, like I was math challenged and is that even like a phrase? I was I, I never thought like even doing financial journalism, like I never thought this would be a thing because I like math was not my thing growing up. And I was thinking like if I would have had this in middle school or high school, maybe it could have made more sense or maybe it would have been my thing. But I don't know, like I have trauma from geometry and stuff. Oh my God, no, so relatable. Yeah, I know, I just have to, even in my job today, I have like one of those like language processing math things where I just like tell it what to do. I don't even write out the problem and yeah, it I does know. it for me because I'm like, so yeah, I'm the same way. When she was like, oh, people who are bad at algebra one, like it impacts their whole life. And I was like, ooh, I guess I, it's, I mean, I'm an anomaly then or something because no, I like, was not good at that. Me and my Google searches doing like 100 plus five. <laughs> <laughs> and like, because it tells you automatically, like I'm doing long division in the Google search bar. Uh, and so I'm like, this tool maybe could have saved my life. I don't know. A lot of time too. Oh, I know. And I definitely think she's hitting on something really strong here. Because one of the reasons it's like, if you're not really good at math to begin with, or say you haven't been like given the skills to be good at it, per se, if you can't connect it to your life, like it just becomes that thing that's hard that doesn't matter to you at all. I know. So I feel like this is such a good way of looking at it because if you feel like you're working on real issues and like maybe they could connect to a job you think you're going to have in the future that maybe you didn't put the math piece of it into there, like I could see this being great. I mean, my mom was a high school math teacher for years and she would always complain about how students would complain that when are we going to use this in real life? When are we going to use this in real life? And she's like, I don't know, sometimes she could come up with stuff, but sometimes she would just tell them like, you won't, you're just going to learn it. You won't. 
Like, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. Putting it in the real world makes a lot of sense. Like, I think out of all the math classes I took, like, there was, like, pre-calculus, all these random things. The best math class I ever took was financial math because it taught you how to do, like, taxes and stuff. Because suddenly the numbers right. made sense when you put it in real world. But if you're just showing me, like, shapes and stuff, I'm like, what does that have to do with me? But maybe, I like, I don't know, maybe a product like this, putting these shapes in the real world could have helped. Like, I imagine, like, if I went, maybe it would have inspired me to be an architect. I don't know. We'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. know. (laughs) But I did think, and I mean, maybe, I mean, we just spent, what, five minutes talking about how much we wish we had had this in school. Like, she talked a lot about how selling to schools wasn't that difficult. And like, we've had guests on Found before that sell to schools who definitely talked about how like some schools can see the need for what they have, but did not describe it the way she did as being incredibly easy and like, almost like word of mouth, they're getting inbound interest sort of thing. But I mean, maybe they're getting asked the same questions. And this does seem like a much smarter route than some of the other things that are out there. Like maybe this does honestly seem like a need to have. Yeah, I was thinking about the school thing, especially because, again, haven't been in a high school in a long time. But I was wondering, because it's kind of targeting, I'm assuming, kids who wouldn't usually have access to resources that would, I don't know, help them. And so when I was thinking about it, I was like, how does the availability of this technology add up with the funding that a lot of these schools get? And not just like from the government, but also, I don't know, like in New York or I always thought that a lot of funding to schools was tied to like the income in the area. And if you're specifically targeting a lot of disenfranchised neighborhoods, how do you make sure that schools within those neighborhoods specifically can always have access to technology like this. Because like, what if there's funding cuts and they're like, oh, we can't use this product anymore. Yeah. That was one question I had, but I also didn't know how to like, Yeah, it's also like because, and they're not like super new, but they're new enough that you could argue maybe they're still in like sales cycle one, maybe sales cycle two kind of thing. Like she mentioned people are renewing, which obviously shows they're finding value in it. But like you said, I mean, budget cuts, it's like, who knows Next five years, something could happen, budgets get cut somewhere. It's like, it would be interesting to kind of follow up then and see if schools are finding it as a need to have or like a really nice to have. Yeah, because I think what she said was that schools in those areas that get less money from the taxes in the community, they get more federal funding. Yeah. But I'm not going to pretend to be any kind of expert on like education funding because... Whew, that is out of my realm. I know, right? That's why I didn't know. I was like, maybe, may, like, I don't, I don't know. I'd probably believe anything you told me about that process I because know. I have no knowledge to come back. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> what I would have loved to have talked more about, I mean, she gave some insight, was the process of kind of fundraising for this tool and speaking to investors and ed tech and raising that family and friend round. I would have loved to have talked more about that. Because I know she mentioned a little bit, and I had sort of read this before, but she originally didn't set out to raise venture funding because she didn't think it was a venture fundable project. And then, I mean, you could say that about a lot of companies at different stages, but then she ended up raising from like Andreessen Horowitz. Yeah. Which is not just like some. That's not just you know, some. It's not just some venture fund. That is like, like the venture fund. I don't want to say the venture fund because I don't want to give them that credit, but like not obviously too much credit. we all. I take the the back. <laughs> we all know them. So it's definitely like a different, yeah, obviously there's VC demand for it, which was not surprising once you talk to her about the product and like the interest they're seeing. But I do wish we talked a little bit more about like why she really did think it wasn't a venture backable product and kind of like what switched when it then went to raising from such a big name, yeah. name recognized fund. Yeah, that 
was something that I was thinking about, especially because it kind of had all the key elements that would kind of, I mean, aside from the, the school aspect, like, I don't know, it's very timely, like VR, AR, the metaverse. <laughs> like, I don't know, like I would back it. It seemed like, so I, I would have loved to to hear more about the thinking pattern around that. Yeah, I think the one other thing that stood out to me here was really some of her thoughts on company culture and sort of, I know like remote versus in-person versus hybrid work has been something that everyone still seems like for the most part trying to figure out and trying to strike the balance. And so I thought it was really interesting hearing her perspective on it because it came off as a little intense about the like, oh, everyone comes to the office because it's better for the collective good than the individualistic good, which very capitalism. But that's not necessarily bad if you're building in Silicon Valley. I mean, you're going to find people who like completely lean into that. I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, this is probably how startup founders and CEOs feel. Because I, I mean, we've been seeing that trend of more founders and CEOs wanting their employees to go back into the office. And so this is probably how they feel about you know employees working from home. And, you know, because at the end of the day, I think I did something about this in terms of workplaces. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's about the bottom line and running the business. So I imagine when she said that, I was just thinking, yeah, this is probably how they all feel. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I feel like we get a lot of people on the show and they'll say something and I'll be like, oh, interesting. And then I'll think about it and I'll come to like the same conclusion you are where I'm like, I wonder if they're all thinking this (laughs) and just not everyone's saying it. I know because as an employee, I'm like, yeah, of course I want to like, I don't know, watch and just like that during my lunch break at home and like cuddled up in a blanket. But of course, maybe when you're the CEO, you're like, what are you doing watching and just like that? (laughs) It's like, what are you doing? We're trying to run a business. So I mean, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, no, it will be interesting because you're right. We started seeing, especially recently, starting seeing more startup CEOs kind of taking the same approach and startup workers too. So it's not just like a full, like top down kind of thing. There definitely seems like there are people who want to go back to a model like that. So yeah, I'm curious to see how many more people, I don't want to say come out with that perspective because that makes it sound way more intense than it is, but like be more forthcoming or sort of talk about that more, I guess is what I'm looking for. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There there was another element that stuck out to me about the company. I know that she's like about to launch science. I'm waiting for the drama that's going to inevitably happen when she goes into the humanities, Um, especially because she was talking about how the South is one of like their best selling regions or like it was very easy to sell to the South. But the South is also, Mm. you know, a hot spot right now for education policies and reform. So I'm going to be interested to see how the company grows into creating curriculum within the humanities and seeing kind of the tension that arises from what she can talk about and what she can't put in there. Because like when she was talking about math and algebra, she was like, you know, it doesn't change. Like one plus one is, you know, two. That's it. There's not, you can't really debate that. But in terms of the humanities, I feel like it's all up for debate. Yeah. English literature, all these things, interpretation. So that's going to be very interesting if they continue to expand. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Because yeah, when I asked that and she was like, well, math is math everywhere. I was like, yep, that's true. But everything else you kind of get out of math and science, it does get a little more. People have opinions and opinions actually, like you said, one plus one is always two. But how you read a story is subjective. I know. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine taking like the SATs on this thing? (laughs) No, maybe I would have done better, though. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Like, would I do better or worse? (laughs) 
Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. 